to The Political Animals, a podcast about whiskey, scrota, and bad accents from a conservative perspective. Those three references will make sense once you listen to the ensuing discussion. I'm your pontificator-in-chief, Jonathan Cole, and this week I'm joined by a good friend and fellow pontificator, Dr. Stephen Shavura. Uh, Dr. Shavura has taught philosophy and political theory at Western Sydney University, Macquarie University, and more recently at Campion College. He researches and publishes in the area of political philosophy and the history of political thought in both Australia and America. Our conversation begins with Trump, where else would one begin these days? And we explore a couple of the differences we've had over the last four years on this Trump question. Uh, but then in due course, we move on to the much weightier and in some ways more interesting question of the very future of conservatism. Stephen Shavura, welcome to The Political Animals. Awesome to be here. Now, I just have to begin with two little bits of housekeeping information for our guests. The first one is that Steve and I have uh, both have a bottle of whiskey mm. open, two glasses with uh, a couple of whiskey shots in it, and two glasses of water mm-hmm. sitting perilous, perilously close to the microphone. Uh, we don't chat without whiskey, so it's kind of mandatory. There's no other way to do it. But... If you hear little chinking noises like this, let's do a little ching ching. Yeah. Uh, or the mic suddenly goes dead. Someone's vomited on it. I don't know. There'll be little sort of noises that sound like we're in a refined bar in the background. So don't mind that. The other thing is that uh, we're coming to you from an undisclosed location somewhere in Australia because uh, Steve is about to go into witness protection because um, it's a little known fact about Steve. He's the founding president of the Federation for Trumpist, Trumpian and Trumpeters. Yes, Trumpeters. Correct. Uh, jazz trumpet players are actually writing to Trump. And of course, uh, given what's happened, what's ensued in America, uh, Steve is in hiding. So I've met him at his safe house. Uh, the plastic surgeon is sharpening the scalpel to do some uh, alterations to his face because- 30 years too late though, but yes, correct. <laughs> it's never too late. Uh, because uh, he's kind of now swimming upstream like he's never swum before. Now, Steve, yes, as the sort of uh, president of this federation, I've envisaged you over the last couple of months in one of three places. Um, One of them, I imagine, is, uh, like I said, you've gone into hiding and you're about Mm. to go into witness protection and reinvent yourself as some kind of left-leaning liberal progressive so that you can rejoin the intellectual circuit in... Which I so desperately wanted to be a part of all my life. Well, I I know that and, you know, we've got to be transparent here and let people know that. Alternatively, I imagine maybe you're just spending a huge amount of time and money in psychotherapy so that you yeah. can get to bed without crying yourself to sleep and with an empty bottle of Jack Daniels on the <laughs> bedside table. And then thirdly, and this is one I hope you're going to tell me is what you're doing, I, I envisage you stockpiling weapons in your basement mm. and planning with your um, confrères to violently overthrow the state and <laughs> install Trump as some kind of world mess- messianic yes. leader so where are you what, what's been 
What place are you in? Well, it's basically number three. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've more or less become a uh, survivalist uh, out here uh, in rural Australia, basically training uh, an army of Australians who are going to bring Trump to Australia and install him as uh, our next prime minister. That's pretty much what we're on about, but don't tell anyone. Okay. Your secret is safe with the million listeners that I have on a weekly basis here. So, uh, only part of that was absurdist because you are a somewhat uh, notable Trump supporter. I think supporter would be fair, but you can I don't know about notable, but yeah, the rest of that... (laughs) Yeah, the rest of that... um, uh, yeah, has a has a, an air of truth about it. I mean, maybe in some ways, um, I don't know, um, a Trump supporter or a, a supporter of a state of affairs that you know me and many others thought would be a better state of affairs, which involved Trump being president, than an alternative state of affairs um, with Hillary Clinton or. Biden Harris um, uh, president. Uh, so I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think part of the problem is that the, the the debate has so centered on personalities that we've almost forgotten that um, you can actually understand the the um, the choice that we're making. Not so much in terms of well, I like Trump or I prefer Trump or I prefer. Clinton to Biden, more in terms of, well, I prefer this particular state of affairs to that particular state of affairs, and the particular state of affairs that I prefer, yeah, involves Trump as president. Can you elaborate a little bit on what this state of affairs is that you're talking about? Yeah, well, a state of affairs, negatively speaking, which um, does not involve a Democrat uh, administration uh, for reasons so for, for traditional reasons why a conservative like myself wouldn't would, would not prefer a democrat government to be in power and positively speaking um, because of the fact that there are it got to a point in 2016 where it was fairly obvious that trump was going to be uh, the presidential candidate for the republican party and then learning about Trump's policies uh, regarding international relations and wars, his policies about trying to sort of rejuvenate certain American industries, uh, his policies about immigration, his rhetoric at least on abortion, and I would argue to some extent what he actually did in terms of some defunding and also placing uh, local conservative judges in courts. Uh, he's, and also just his general stance on the culture wars in general. Uh, that for me and many other people indicated that out of two states of affairs that one could choose from, the one that involved Trump was preferable. And I guess what I've done is I've described a way of supporting a Trump administration in a way that doesn't focus on the the per- on the question of whether or not you like, sort of, quote, like, end quote, Trump. 
And that's the question that people often ask, you know, why or why do you not like Trump? Well, what does that even mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, who, I mean, what does it mean when someone says, do you like Trump? So let me extrapolate what I hear from that. It sounds mm. like, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm going to throw wrong, through, man. You're wrong. <laughs> throw through a few things at you. It's, Please do. It sounds like a kind of lesser of two evils rationale. That is it. When you, once Trump became the candidate in 2016, obviously it was a binary choice between him and Hillary Clinton. And again, in 2020, it was a, another binary choice between him and Biden. So is your calculation not so much a love affair with Trump, but when you look at the two options, you think Trump on balance is going to be better or do um, less bad. And then related to that, when you, when you talk about stripping out the personality, likability, character question, which I can't disagree has been front and center, it seems like you're placing yourself in a, in a small camp of people because on the Trump side, you do have people who do seem to really be animated by his personality. Yeah. There's a kind of messianic love affair with this bullish kind of guy. They love how he owns the lives. They love how he's unconventional and how he's funny. And then on the other hand, you've got people who are opposed to Trump because they absolutely revile and loathe his character. And he could, uh, you know, there's that famous thing about how he could shoot people on yeah. Fifth Avenue and get away with it. Well, I'm going to mm. flip that round and say he could save a baby from a burning car and <laughs> he still would not mm. be, no one would actually acknowledge that as, as a good act from those who revile. So it sounds like you've got this very almost pragmatic, pragmatist view where you just strip out all of that, all of the extenuating issues that do suck up so much of the focus, including sucking in the Trump supporters and you've got this kind of, um, if you like very, it sounds to me like a very analytical thing, almost like a, a mathematical thing where you're, you're sort of weighing up the. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, first let me say, uh, for those who, uh, just love Trump personally, I can actually see the appeal. I get what they love about him. He's very charismatic. Uh, he hammers the left. I mean, in, in a sense, he treats the left in the same way that the left have treated so much of the right over the years. And I think there's a, a, a strong element of sort of um, of delight in that from the right. That was one of the things that, that, that Milo Yiannopoulos um, used to do. Um, but I can also see the, the revulsion from his detractors and not even the left from his conservative detractors. I totally get why they look at this guy and just think, you know, I just cannot vote for this guy. I guess I'm trying to, yeah, um, um, sort of step back a bit from the personality, which is not nothing, but it's just not everything. And well, first thing, John, you know, um, I think every choice between two candidates and two parties is always to some extent going to be about the lesser of two evils mm -hmm. because no matter who you vote for whether it's an individual or a party it's very rare that you're going to like everything that they're planning on doing and it's yeah, only a fool w w would think that 
in whatever they do anyway, there aren't going to be negative consequences for someone. So to some extent, it's always going to be the lesser of two evils. I just think that it was such an extreme situation. Um, certainly with um, uh, Trump and, and Clinton, and, and now also I think with um, uh, Trump and, and Biden, although now Biden's in now, so we'll see how that turns out. Um, but um, yeah, I, I guess I, I wouldn't use the word calculation because I think that's too scientific and too precise, but basically, yeah, it's, 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 it's in, it's, I guess it's sort of conceptualizing uh, who, who I'm going to vote for, not so much in terms of the personalities, but in terms of the likely results of whoever is elected. Mm. Again, sort of preferring one particular state of affairs to another. You know, but it has to be admitted that part of the state of affairs is Trump's personality. I mean, you can't just dismiss that. And so someone could quite reasonably say, well, Steve, part of your Trump, your sort of state of affairs that you prefer is a guy who has proven to be, uh, you know, uh, someone who you know, lies, uh, someone who has said pretty disgusting things about women, someone who has stoked racial tensions, um, and, and, and sort of other things. And, and actually, in, in, in fact, yeah, I admit that, that that is absolutely you true. It. I accept it. I mean, yeah, you can't really deny it. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's, you know, there, there are a lot of people who were defending a Trump administration, but who were not sort of defending the, the, the character of Trump, even though I do think that his character can be overly demonized uh, by those on the left. And I think a guy who, for me, the guy who really hit the nail on the head, and and again, this is coming from a conservative point of view. So there's a sense in which, look, if if a leftist said to me, Steve, sort of convince me that I should be a Trump supporter, I just wouldn't even bother. We'd just be too far apart. Um, And there's a sense in which even if a conservative asked me to convince them to be a Trump supporter, that could be a possibility. Um, but even then, I wouldn't necessarily try that hard. But it's just within the conservative point of view, I think Victor Davis Hanson hit the nail on the head when he likened you know, his support for Trump um, in terms of a preference for chemotherapy over cancer. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> That's great. Well, I mean, chemotherapy, it's like it's poison. Yeah. But it's better than cancer. And from a conservative point of view, a lot of people, and myself included, made the decision that, yeah, Trump is a kind of poison uh, in America, and and it's not going to be without its negative side effects. But there's very good reason to believe that, you know, in 2016, 2021 now, that given the state of the Democratic Party, uh, given their foreign policy, and given, yeah, I suppose given the ideological direction of the Democratic Party, which admittedly may be restrained by perhaps an increasing conservative nature of uh, Republicans in America, that, um, yeah, Trump was preferable, or better put another way, a state of affairs that involved Trump as president was preferable. Yeah. Chemotherapy, it's poison, but it's better than cancer. Yeah. Well, I, I might say that that could fit within the ambit of my lesser of two evils. Yeah. Um, yeah. Paradigm here. But it does strike me, Steve, that 
I find that uh, David Victor Hansen. David? Victor Davis Hansen. Yeah. <laughs> Victor That's Davis. okay. Hansen. You could have said David Lee Roth. That would have been even worse, but it's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeez, you never talk to me again. The That sort of chemotherapy cancer analogy, I do find logically coherent. But of course, it's all based on the soundness of the premise, which is that the Democrats represent a cancer. Yes. And it seems to me that's where, that's the most contentious point of that argument and so i've i've never struggled to respect people that have your view i've Mm. struggled to respect the kind of idolatrous love affair that certain people have with trump because i just don't find him the kind of character you can love and what makes me uncomfortable about that and this this has synergy with something you said earlier i just can't bring myself to fall in love with any politician because i think particularly as a christian you've got to have a, a healthy um if you if you like protective armor against idolatry the moment you start worshiping a human political figure well then you've really left christianity in my view mm-hmm. and you should have a christian underlying christian anthropology that should not make you vest all of your hopes or sort of uh unsupportable hopes in the actions of uh human beings uh where am i going with all this i don't know because i've possibly already had too much whiskey i, I, well, I noticed the glass I noticed is nearly I'm, empty man <laughs> well I'm, I'm the bottle's nearly empty actually yeah, yeah. Tell you. Uh, i'm way ahead of you but anyway to come back you know the this cancer question yes yeah. i find it a respectable position because i know the people genuinely believe that we are in some kind of existential crisis politically and that is that the left has mutated into something uniquely threatening that it perhaps wasn't back in the um, 80s or, or 90s. But of course, I, to be honest, I struggle to get to the cancer thing. Mm. You know, a virus, I, c- I, can, I can buy. Some kind of annoying, debilitating disease that's not going to kill you, I can buy. But cancer, uh, I just struggle to... I struggle to see that analogy really meeting the empirical reality that I find. So when you, when you make this reference to David Lee Roth, uh, he was ahead of his time coming up with this Trump analogy, of course, but, um, are you saying you find, is it the logic that, um, David Lee Roth uses to get to this, to the sort of, um, justificatory, uh, rationale, if you like, that you're latching onto, or is it the actual cancer part? That is, well, you yeah. think. I mean, do do you think? I mean, the the thing is, if that if that analogy is true, then we'll be doomed in about four to eight years, right? Because the Democrats have won. Well, I mean, cancer without any treatment uh, is going to be a obviously a big problem. But uh, there's, there's 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 very rarely in politics a party that operates without any restraint from the, just the dynamics of democratic politics, whether that's polls restraining them from choosing certain policies over another, or whether that's the dynamics of um, the, the parliament that they're in, stopping them from in, uh, putting in place their laws and policies to the fullest. So there's a sense in which there's probably not going to be, and maybe even never going to be a state of affairs where a party will fully implement what it wants to implement. But I, I guess the useful thing about the cancer analogy for me is that 
the focus of that analogy is actually not the, the cancer bit. It's actually, it's the chemotherapy bit. It's the poison bit. Um, but, but let me just say... But can I just, can I just interject yeah. one point there? Because mm. if the patient in this analogy has been misdiagnosed, then chemotherapy is going to do a lot of damage to a healthy body. Yeah, absolutely. And it's always possible to be wrong. You know, you can always be wrong. I mean, you can be wrong that something is, that, that the party and their program uh, is going to be more dangerous than it actually will be. Mm-hmm. But you can also be wrong in that thinking, well, this isn't going to you know, make much difference. And it actually turns out to be quite detrimental. But um, I would just say that, for, you know, I mean, I mean, this this particular podcast is operating from a conservative point of view. And you've already actually made the helpful distinction between maybe what the Democratic Party has become over the last, you know, say, maybe 12 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, what it might have been, say, in the 1970s, when arguably both parties were sort of closer together on certain issues. And of course, you had far more overlap in terms of policy positions between Republicans and Democrats overall, which is, as you know, very well documented in the political science literature. But from a conservative point of view, one can't be neutral about the Democrats. You know, no, no, you can't, someone can't on the one hand say that I'm a conservative and then on the other hand say that, you know, the Democrats in themselves are, are harmless. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and you haven't said that, but I would just sometimes, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't want someone to be sort of to claim on the one hand to be neutral, uh, to be conservative, but not by virtue of that openly admit that, that they must therefore think that the Democrats are bad for America. If you don't think the Ameri- uh, Democrats and those of their ilk are bad for America, then you're not a conservative. Yeah. So, that, so whatever you want to call the Democrats, whether it's cancer, whether it's COVID, you know, there's something that you don't want. Yeah. I can help you out, I think, uh, sticking with this analogy. Okay. And, and I'll probably leave the tortured analogy alone after that. But, of course, if you do have cancer, let's say you find a lump in your... Um, Wherever. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> I was, was going to go somewhere there, but... Sure. Uh, you yeah. know, it could be anywhere. Uh, you find a lump and you ignore it. And so you don't get treated. And by the time you eventually go around to the doctor... They tell you you've got three months to live and it's too late. So it seems to me you're arguing that, yeah, okay, there's some risk with the chemotherapy. It is a very strong Mm. um, uh, treatment. But if there's some risk that the body has cancer, then you're going to save the body. And indeed, if you leave the chemotherapy too late, this is where the Democrats come in. uh, So if you ignore the threat or you um, underestimate it or you sort of convince yourself, look, I can, I can always go to the doctor next week, next week, next week, then you have no treatment. And before you know it, the, bo- the body's dead. And I, I certainly agree, this analogy cuts both ways. That is, it seems to me there are two risks. So there's the risk that you, you find a lump in some unknown region of the body that may or may not be near the scrotum. And you had to go. To the <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I, can't, I can't help it. No, and, no, definitely not. And uh, and you do a massive dose of chemotherapy, destroy the immune system, make life hell for the patient, and they come out in a much diminished, weaker, more unhealthy state mm. than they were because you have overestimated 
and misdiagnose the threat. But then on the other hand, you can also misdiagnose the other way. And this happens all the time. You go in, you've got, you're feeling a bit ill, the doctor doesn't send you off to a specialist, you don't take the tests, or as I said, you ignore the symptoms and you leave it too late. And then chemotherapy, Trump in this case, mm. no longer becomes a treatment option. And to your point, it seems to me like to get all epistemological, you know, we are observing events and we have a very limited purview. All we can go by is the statements, the actions, the activity in Congress, the way things are reported. And these days, I mean, if you read, uh, if you enmesh yourself in certain sources, well, it looks like you've got five different types of cancer and they're all stage four. And then if you immerse yourself in a different type of uh, media, this is a fit 25 year old that can run three marathons in a day. And so for me, as someone who I think is more skeptical, more ambivalent towards Trump than you are, mm. that is, I think he's of disreputable character, but it sounds like you think that as well. I yeah. think our difference comes down to the state of affairs, as you put it. Mm. And let's face it, the state of affairs is can inherently be interpreted in different ways because it's such a complex uh, phenomenon. And it's not that we're being dishonest, we're just trying to assess and we can read it in a different way. My, my, my thing is that, um, forget the left, because I've, I've never really cared too much about the left. Maybe that's my problem. But on the right, it seems to me, this has become a real test of orthodoxy. I mean, if you, and you kind of, you kind of hinted at this as well. This is your own kind of scrotum Yes. Hey, man. <laughs> Stay away from my scrotum, man. <laughs> Stick to your own. Yeah, let's not... Let's, let's, okay, that's my fault. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I had to go there, but you had to actually uh, go there with me. No, you know, <laughs> I'm not going anywhere with you. The, the thing is that it seems to me there's not enough epistemic humility on the right these days to recognize that when we talk about the state of affairs... These are judgments we make. These are readings. It's not like anyone can really substantiate that their particular interpretation of the state affairs is just like unim unimpeachable. That seems to me there you cannot remove the scope for debate here. And it seems to me on the right, it's just become a test of you either think we're in the Flight 93 situation and Trump is the savior. And if you don't, then you're some kind of treacherous turncoat who is facilitating the end of the, the world as we know it, bringing on the apocalypse by facilitating uh, Biden. And of course, those people have the, mm. the same thing. You're destroying conservatism because you have the temerity to say that, you know, when Trump did or said this, it was actually good. So th yeah. there's no question or anything there. I'm just, just laying it all out. No, man, um, that's fair enough. I mean, obviously the right has... Uh, a lot of the right has fallen into a kind of apocalypticism whereby unless Trump is in power, then basically the forces of evil are going to sweep in and destroy everything that is holy. Um, and it's like the end of the world. I, I totally get that. Uh, I don't myself subscribe to that. And, you know, you can be a, you know, tr quote, Trump supporter, end quote, and not be apocalyptic. Um, 
the left has fallen into, I mean, we, we can see that the left has become increasingly apocalyptic over the last four years about Trump, um, thinking he was going to start nuclear wars, thinking he was going to set up a fascist dictatorship. Yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot of the, even the mainstream commentary about Trump was totally unhinged. Mm -hmm. I mean, invoking Nazi Germany uh, and Hitler when describing Trump. I mean, utterly ridiculous. I mean, think of the Black Lives Matter protests and riots. That would have been a perfect opportunity for Trump to have declared a state of emergency mm. and used military force. I mean, his, as you know, historically, those kinds of events function as perfect pretexts for you know, so-called dictators to be able to take charge and arrogate more power to themselves. In actual fact, most of Trump's supporters were frustrated throughout the whole thing that he did next to nothing. He just mm -hmm. let it happen. Um, yeah, so, you know, um, the, the, apocaly the apocalypticism is definitely on both sides. And, you know, it's certainly the case that, as you say, at the end of the day, all you can do is make educated guesses one way or the other. And sure, you know, uh, anyone who says if Trump doesn't get elected and the Democrats get in, it's just going definitely to be hell. That, that is definitely a kind of absence of epistemic humility because you don't know that. There are so many variables mm -hmm. that could actually hamstring the Democrats from doing what they want to do. But the same thing goes and, and was borne out by Trump. People said that if Trump gets elected, um, he is going to destroy America. Mm. I mean, that was their words. And I remember actually having a, a discussion with a, a former a colleague of mine at, at a university, a former political science colleague. And uh, he said, well, you know, now that Trump's elected, he's going to destroy America. And, and the question I kept asking him was, how do you know? Mm. You know, how do you know? And he didn't, he didn't know. It was just a hunch of his. Now, even Trump's detractors, I mean, his, his sort of more sane detractors will admit that America didn't fare badly uh, in terms of certainly economically, um, in terms of its international relations um, under Trump, that at the very least, he wasn't detrimental and maybe even in some respects, particularly maybe in, in elements of foreign relations, was actually quite impressive. Um, it's all, we're almost already forgetting that he was no, you know, um, nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. And that's almost the equivalent of the saving the child from the burning car. Like if he did it, it wouldn't even be acknowledged on the left. And that was totally ignored for, um, by the left that this, this guy was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. Um, and again, um, now people might say, well, COVID, they'll, 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 they'll know that they can't say he's destroyed the economy. They'll know that they can't say that in terms of his international relations, he's been horrible. They can't say that. So usually they'll bring up his COVID. And it's definitely the case that America has done badly with COVID. No one really denies it conservative, um, Trumpist or leftist. No one denies it. The question is, to what extent can that be attributed to Trump? And I think it's actually helpful to draw a distinction between Trump's rhetoric, which is sometimes just bizarre, um, bordering on 
I wouldn't quite say insane, but um, highly eccentric. So you can say insane, that's okay. And, but in actual fact, and his policy, and his policies actually were pretty timely in terms of closing borders. And we've got to remember also that the way that America is, that, um, you know, you know the, the, the departments that would actually deal with something like COVID have proven in the past and, and proved during COVID not to be as efficient as they should have been. And also we've got to remember that a lot of the information about COVID, about its uh, mortality rates, about how serious it actually was, that there were conflicting opinions about that well into March. And also that, you know, America being a federal system, different states responded and had the right to respond to it differently in terms of lockdowns and mask mandates. And also that actually quite a few of the deaths in certain states uh, were because of really bad decisions uh, by Democrat governors in terms of putting elderly people had COVID, not in hospitals, but in nursing homes resulting in the deaths of thousands and thousands of, of elderly Americans. And so when you put all things together, you might argue that Trump's rhetoric proved very unhelpful, but I think it's actually pretty difficult to argue that the reason America has done so badly is because of Trump. The state that did worse up until now, I think is still New York, mm. but you'd expect it to do very badly. It's the most densely populated state in America. It's a it's an international transportation hub. Um, there's a very active subway system. And you've got people living in shared accommodation through a very densely populated city. It shouldn't be, and a Democrat mayor, it shouldn't be surprising <laughs> that they did badly. And, and in fact, you and I, we, you know, we listen to Commentary Magazine. We remember that even in early March, before Australia, I think, had locked down. New Yorkers basically de facto had locked down. It was a ghost town. New yeah. Yorkers voluntarily basically stayed inside. It was a ghost town and it still got really badly hit. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just, there are certain things you just can't blame on Trump. And, and, but, but once you, again, once you distinguish between his weird and yeah, sure, sometimes insane rhetoric, but what he actually did and, the, and all the variables involved and even the the tragedy of the effects of COVID in America, I don't think they're actually a very strong case for Trump ruining America. Mm -hmm. So I'd say that the Trump years are actually a great example of the left predicting sort of apocalyptic results that didn't actually happen. And when you think of actually the, probably the, some of the worst things that did happen during Trump's administration, I would actually think of the Black Lives Matter riots and protests as being incredibly socially divisive. Um, that was not caused by Trump's supporters. In fact, Trump's supporters were very restrained during all of that. I mean, you've got hundreds of millions of guns in America owned, many of them owned by conservative Republican Trump supporters. How many Black Lives Matter rioters and protesters were shot by armed Trump supporters, mm. maybe one or two. Um, so I, yeah, I think that, um, 
the predictions about what would happen under Trump did not come true, notwithstanding the really unfortunate events surrounding the capital of late, um, which I'm kind of ambivalent about, to be honest. So you can, we can talk about that if you like. Yeah, look, we, we can get there. Let me, let me get there with a, a few by responding to what you said there. Look, I, I can buy almost all of that. Like on, on COVID, I think everything you said is completely true. My, my view, insofar as one can really guess, and I think you're right that we are guesstimating here, is that I think it's, quite, it's conceivable that another president, Democrat or Republican, doesn't really matter, could have been more effective than Trump. But I'm not sure America would have averted or could have averted disaster because of all of the the factors and variables you mentioned in terms of the way the virus came in, its federal system, its uh, strong sense of liberty and individuality and its inability to comply with instructions and its polarization, the whole series of issues. And so it seems to me that you know, I, I want to put an argument to you and we will get to the capital thing because I think whilst I can agree with a lot that you're saying, it, it kind of feels like you're, a, you're in some ways, you acknowledge it, he's of poor character. But what I'm not hearing is that his bizarreness, his insane rhetoric, his, you may not agree with this, but I think there's a, there's a baseline incompetence there. I mean, he just doesn't actually know much about government. That is... His inexperience, which a lot of people like, actually is a liability in this sense. He clearly doesn't really care much about the Constitution or know much in it. And it seems like he's not hes not an astute political operator in terms of knowing how Congress operates and how the various arms of government and how to manipulate and... Um, Can I just say, I'd say he's not an, an astute co- constitutional operator. I think he's a very astute political operator. But see, the interesting thing is you say that and yet he... He lost. He lost. Yeah. Like quite catastrophically in the end. Mm. It, it wasn't actually particularly yeah. close. He, he was outdone by 7 million votes in the popular vote. Biden got over 300 um, electoral college votes. And yeah, there's the whole thing about the election. But if we just accept the numbers yeah. as they are, which I do... <clears throat> Personally, the closest he comes is about 20,000 votes, which in elections actually is not that close. I mean, there are always mm. states that come down to that much. And in the other so-called close states, we're into the hundreds of thousands of votes uh, often. And the Republicans did very well in the House. So people were split ticket voting. And up until Trump's, I think, abysmal handling of the post-election, I mean, both of the Senate candidates in Georgia beat their Republican candidates. It's just that under Georgian law, you have to go to runoff if you don't get 50% of the vote. So they beat their Democrat opponents on the day and then lost. And there's very good research done to this that 112,000 Republicans that voted in that Senate race in the um, general election didn't turn up. But anyway, setting that, a, that aside, I'm, all, I'm working my way to a kind of counter-argument that I just want to put to you and see how you respond. You see... And it's an argument that accepts everything you've said, okay? So I accept every single premise. Let's say uh, we, the Democrats have become like a cancer that is going to destroy America. Uh, Trump, love him or hate him, he is the candidate. 
And he's someone who's going to stand up to oppose, stave off this cancer. He's the chemotherapy. Well, now at this juncture, couldn't someone say, well, in the end, he didn't succeed because he not only lost his weakened conservatism, he's split it, he's created effectively a civil war, he's made it a laughing stock, he's emboldened the left, he's made, he's confirmed every crazy caricature they have, and I completely agree. I mean, these, these guys and girls just do not understand conservatism, and they, they lost their proverbial and went hysterical when it came to Trump. And I, and I find the, the Nazi language actually offensive, offensive, offensive to Holocaust survivors who really did actually... I mean, we're comparing a guy who tried to systematically exterminate an entire race and killed over 5 million people and started a war that killed tens of millions of people uh, with a guy who makes appalling tweets. And really, the worst thing you can say about him is that he possibly incited a failed putsch or seizure of the capital, which I think is a grave offence. But let's get real. This is nothing like gassing men, women and children who are because they are Jews or gypsies or homosexuals or whatever. So the point is, I mean, couldn't someone now say to you, Steve, well, in the end, this was a disaster. The Republicans could have chosen a more competent operator who would have had the prospects of serving eight years and perhaps handing over, potentially would have handed COVID a little bit better, except that they wouldn't have been able to um, hand it um, substantively or substantially better. And so in the end, this kind of looks like a disaster if we accept all of your mm. logic. And actually now the cancer is in power. Uh, yeah, someone could say that. and I just uh, did. <laughs> yeah, yes, you did. And you are a someone. Um, and I would say, uh, yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a plausible analysis. And then my next question would be, what's your point? <laughs> I mean, in all seriousness... Um, it's always possible. Well, my point is, isn't it a tragedy that they didn't choose uh, Marco Rubio or someone a little more conventional? But don't you think that's a totally banal question? It's, no. it's, you don't? It's like... Well, why, why banal? Well, because it, that's not how things turned out. Well, obviously, it's not how things turned out. But, I, but it's, I'm going back to this logic of we... That this is the, the rationalisation for a Trump is that we needed someone who could save the Republic from a cancer. And I'm saying in the end, he possibly did the opposite. I'm not saying this is necessarily mm. my view, but I can, I think circumstances and developments at least now enable this counter argument in such a way that you've got to take it seriously. I mean, it would have sounded ridiculous say two years ago, you know, the argument then that it's, it's conclusive that electing Trump was going to destroy the Republican party and the conservative movement. I'm not even saying it's going to do those things, but people in conservatives in America are contemplating this question. And it seems like if nothing else, the right is in a kind of existential crisis now, and it's more split, less united, arguably weaker than it was. And I, I would actually argue that the Democrats seem more emboldened, more hysterical, more fanatical, mm -hmm. more cancerous, dare I yep. say it. And I'm just saying, uh, couldn't a kind of uh, person in your very, it seems, nuanced 
Trumpy position. Mm. We're in a little segment in there surrounded it's by fruit. Trump, Trumpons. Trumpons. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, is there no part of you that says, oh, gee, if, if they had have actually elected a Jeb Bush or a Marco Rubio, even Cruz, who I think is pretty Trumpy these days anyway, although I'm not sure he has any particular principles whatsoever. But even so, a Cruz, I mean, look, it's not like they would have pursued a pro-abortion policy. Mm. It's not like they wouldn't have appointed conservative judges. It's not like they may have done some things differently on the economy, but then again, virtually all Republicans are in favor of tax cuts. And that's Mm. the signature thing that Trump did. The failed healthcare policy of Trump, I mean, that was basically led by the congressional party anyway. And so... I'm I'm saying, isn't it kind of isn't it, is there not a part of you that thinks, well, okay, there, we wouldn't have had the satisfaction of that kind of fighter who owned the libs and gave them a taste of their own medicine, and perhaps some of the policies wouldn't have been as good on foreign policy because they tend to be pretty much all warmongers, it seems to me, <laughs> since mm. we're on with liber- libertarians. No, I, I I agree with that yeah, on yeah. balance. It still would have done the sort of bulwark against the Democrats. It still would have done some conservative policies that a conservative like you could get behind. May not have been as cathartic and satisfying, but there would have been the potential, certainly no guarantee, because we're in the realm of speculation here. There's no guarantee they would have won re-election, but there would have been some chance. And it, it, it seems to me quite plausible that the right would have been more united even if they had a loss because it could have it would have been the loss of a conventional uh republican and you're asking um, and my in, point is yeah, <laughs> no, you're, you're asking in hindsight don't you think it would have been better had that that they had not chosen trump and they'd chosen maybe a, a marco rubio or a ted cruz because whatever happened we know what wouldn't have happened uh we wouldn't have had um the riots, um, maybe, maybe not. Uh, remember, the riots were not incited by Trump. They were mm. incited by Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. And you had Black Lives Matter very active during the Obama years as well. Mm. As a matter of fact, that's when they were founded, I think, in 2013. So it's not like Trump caused Black Lives Matter, although I have no doubt that, that the Trump administration definitely... Um, animated the movement. Yeah, and it f- for sure animated the movement. And probably more than a Rubio would have. I have no doubt. There's no doubt on my mind. Uh, so, but you're right. At the end of the day, Trump didn't choke to death a black man. It was a cop, a nobody cop in Minneapolis. Yeah. And so no matter who's in power, there are certain events that can spark uh, catalytic yeah, responses. I, I mean, but I, I think you're... Your question sounds simple, and I'm very actually tempted to say uh, yes. And and the other thing, given the the fragmentation now of conservatives in America, 100% Trump has proven to be very divisive um, among conservatives. Although to to make that actually a bit more subtle or nuanced... um, Trump Trump yeah, I, I think actually the division between conservatives in America is, is more between intellectually inclined conservatives and Trumpists. 
Uh, and I think that might actually have a lot to do with the, the interesting psychology of intellectuals. Um, but um, yeah, I, I'm actually tempted to say, yes, so given your analysis, actually things would have been better had Trump not been elected. Um, although, you know, you have to weigh up other things, for example, by your own admission. And I agree, uh, and, and I think a, a really great uh, analyst of this is uh, the Boston Uni University professor of history, Andrew Basovich, who's written a lot of books. Um, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a fan. Um, on basically the fact that, you know, adventuring and warmongering has historically been a bipartisan policy of the Republicans and Democrats. So, you know, you know per hypothesis, let's say a Rubio or a Cruz came in. Okay, let's think of the things that would have been avoided with them. So the fragmentation of conservatives and maybe the strife in the, the Republican Party. Uh, the... The, the severe intensification of polarization in America. Yeah, I can kind of go along with that, even though we don't know for sure about the, the that the polarization wouldn't have intensified to a great degree. But even on your hypothesis, um, what would American foreign policy be now? Could there have been more adventuring uh, into the Middle East under these guys? Well, I mean, I guess we don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and all I would say is, uh, you know, I find your analysis actually plausible. I think it's plausible, and maybe all things considered, it actually would have been better. Would have been they would have been better off electing a Ted Cruz or a Marco Rubio. I mean, we don't know that. The best that we can say is that probably certain serious issues facing America and the Republican Party would, at the very least, have been ameliorated. Uh, maybe even completely avoided, but it might also mean uh, that some other things that Trump either staved off or actually accomplished wouldn't have been staved off or accomplished <laughs> under them. And, and look, I think I'm one of, uh, and maybe it's a minority of, of people who supported Trump over the last four years. My position was that I only started supporting Trump when it was obvious that it was, well, basically when Trump got the nomination, it was going to be between him and Hillary. Mm. And a lot of my friends were kind of the same. In fact, I, for me, most of the people I knew uh, who were conservatively inclined did not start out actually supporting Trump. They started out supporting Cruz and Rubio. I knew a couple of people who were Trumpers right from the beginning. I have to say, I found them to be kind of eccentric. I thought they were a little bit, to, to be honest, I thought they were half mad. I really did. Um, they probably were. Um, well, some of them were, yeah, a little, I wouldn't say that they were, yeah, uh, they weren't. Maybe a quarter mad. Their brains weren't broken, but they were definitely cracked, if I could put it that way. <laughs> but in all seriousness, once it came to pass that, that Trump was going to be the guy, then as far as I was concerned, it was between two potential states of affairs and I made my decision. Um, and uh, I don't regret having made that decision, although I admit that, yeah, maybe things would have turned out better with someone else, but, but maybe not. Yeah. So I think at, at this juncture, Steve, I mean, this is a fascinating topic for you and uh, me and hopefully for at least someone listening, but I think our positions are clear. And they're actually pretty close in that 
I think a lot of our analysis is actually aligned. There's a lot of concentricity, just to sound all pompous and bombastic, between our positions. But I think our difference really comes down to where you began, which was the state of affairs. And I think it was instructive that you began there. And I think that, for me, was very illuminating in terms of understanding the logic behind your position on Trump, which I'll say again for the record, I find actually coherent. Hmm. That is, it, it is a coherent position based on the premises that you're working with. I have, a, I have slightly different premises, although there's a lot of, like I said, overlap. You find uh, it coherent, but not entirely compelling. I, I, I find I, I'm, I'm far less, I'm, I'm not able to support Trump to your level. Although, yeah. as I've said on this podcast, I, I like some of his policies, and yeah. particularly foreign policy was, was one of them. Uh, I'm not... A, I'm not in your Trumpons yes. place uh, because I think for for really two reasons. One, I have a, a different interpretation of the state of affairs, not a radically yeah. different interpretation. I do think Hillary Clinton would have been uh, inimical to the republic. I just don't think she would have destroyed it. I think that exaggerates actually yeah. the capability of she any wouldn't politician. have been cancer. Yeah, and yeah. I, I'm not a fan of Biden, but I I also don't think he's the um, the sort of antichrist either. I find a lot of the hysterical rhetoric guy coming out of the right, the kind of uh, premise, if you listen to the kind of people that that were involved in the insurrection or the storming of the Capitol building, I mean, these people really do think this was the moment when <laughs> it was now or never mm. to save the, the Republic. Republic yeah. Now, a lot of them were told by Jesus to do it as well as it turns out, but we perhaps don't have the time to go into the uh, eccentricities of American Christianity, which continues to baffle me as an Australian evangelical. Yeah, a fascinating topic in itself. Yeah, maybe we can do that on another occasion. The only other thing is I do, I do, I agree that the character issue is overblown, but I, I think it's more responsible for some of the things that I think you would agree with me have been negative points for Trump. That is some of the, the damage he's done, I do think comes from his character. And to me, that was obvious beforehand. And so I, I'm a little skeptical about the casual dismissals of his character as though somehow it's not relevant. Yeah, the fact, the fact he, he had a, a um, tryst with a, a porn star and God knows how many other Women. That's mm. that's not the kind of thing that worries me. Although I, I don't approve of that behaviour at all. It's the it's actually the insane rhetoric and the incompetence and the they're just constant counterproductive things that undermine <laughs> everything that people like about him on the right. In any event, I'm basically just summarising for people as though they needed that. I'm telling them how to suck eggs, really. But I'm sort of, if you like, I'm just putting a bookend on that discussion. Because I think we've made our positions clear. Mm. We've had a little discussion about it. And in the time remaining, I just want to move to this question. Forget Trump for a second. Well, I guess uh, we can't forget. But I can't. I can't <laughs> forget him. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. Steve's uh, on Steve, the second glass. Steve yeah. finally got to his whiskey and has joined the party. I can't, Better late than never. I can't quit him. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, we're seeing, seeing a different side of uh, Steve here. It's not actually a surprise to me because uh, this, this is not my first uh, whiskey bottle with Steve. Uh, so the, um, 
and this is this is this is our sort of restrained version, isn't it, for public <laughs> consumption? But what I, what I want to move to is the future of conservatism. We've already dipped into it a little bit along the way. It sounds like we both agree that this election and the Trump factor. Let's just draw a circle around that yeah. and call it that. Has divided, um, upended the board table with all the pieces on it it's created all kinds of consternation angst self-questioning on the right and we have seen new developments i mean whatever you think about the capitol building um that is something i think we haven't seen from the right (laughs) certainly not in that reagan era uh bush senior bush junior this is really in some ways radical stuff it seems it's radical it's way out there and so I don't, I actually, I want to be very precise here. I, I'm not interested in your views on the future of Trumpism per se, mm. who's going to, whether he's going to run, all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's a, there's a billion pieces of commentary on that. I want to ask you a more general question. And I, and I, I want to personalize this and ask this as someone who has gone on the record as an Australian indeed. Mm. who has been, if you like, sympathetic to um, Trump, or you, you've just... Mm. You've, I mean, the, the sheer unorthodoxy of not being opposed to him as an academic, yeah. a scholar, an intellectual. I know you don't particularly like that term, but I'm going to ram it down your throat. I've been like called worse things by better people, John. <laughs> okay, okay. So... I, I want to ask you, what future do you think conservatism has given everything that has brought us to this point i mean short answer is i don't know um which always <laughs> and thank you ladies and gentlemen that's, that's right. been steve chivara but being an intellectual that means i have a very long answer as well okay give us the long answer yeah well i mean i think what conservatism i think that the big project i mean we've got to be careful here i mean when we talk about conservatism in the abstract um are we talking about conservatism in america conservatism in in, in Britain, conservatism in Australia, but, but certainly uh, in, in America for now, then we can maybe talk about conservatism in general or conservatism in Australia. I think it's probably going to be coming to grips with what's happened over the last four years and trying to figure out what aspects of what went wrong um, were owing to departures from what I like to call philosophical conservatism namely a sort of emphasis, um, I suppose an emphasis on um, uh, change, not for the sake of change, but because serious deficiencies have been identified and remedies need to be carried out. And also an element of philosophical conservatism, and maybe this is sort of more in the Kirkian tradition in America, which tends to have a lot more substance to it uh, in the sense of sort of actual doctrines built into it. So um, a concern for the well-being of the family, a concern for an objective moral order, and also an emphasis on liberty. Uh, To what extent what has happened over the last four years in America regarding Trump and how it seems to have turned out pretty badly to what extent and in what ways has that happened because we've actually departed from philosophical conservatism. And I think a lot of the future of conservatism is going to be, in a sense, 
trying to recapture a definition of conservatism that doesn't lend itself to the kind of zeal that characterized maybe a lot of a lot of Trumpism. Uh, so it's going to be a kind of program of um, uh, what's the word um, um, sort of when you're um, ah, my mind oh my mind yeah you tipped over that point between yeah, peak, the, the, yeah. The, the sort of a just enough whiskey to be lubricated and yeah. fun and lucid into dabbling monkey yeah yeah well i'm drinking um monkey shoulder so but um yeah renovating sort of renovating conservatism and making it uh, and i suppose putting out a vision of conservatism that's 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 sort of intellectually credible again and doesn't just easily slide into a kind of zealous right-wingism and or a conservatism merely defined negatively in terms of we're not left mm-hmm. so i think i think I think that's going to be the program uh, over the next 10 years. But, but, but from a political point of view, the question is going to be how can, well, A, we uh, um, republicize a more philosophically sophisticated understanding of conservatism, and, but, but also in the, in the process try to get as many of those people who became politically active because of the Trump years in support of Trump, how we can get them on board of a more philosophically sophisticated conservatism. And maybe that's impossible. Uh, I think the future of conservatism, uh, yeah, it's all very unclear. I mean, one could say that it's, it's kind of very bright because over the last sort of five years, uh, six years even, you've had some events, you've had two major events that have been major shots in the arm to conservatism, Brexit and Trump. Mm. And they were major shots in the arm to conservatism worldwide, and to a lesser extent, probably the rise of of conservative nationist governments in Europe as well. Um, Now, Brexit uh, is not in a good state right now. It's It's in a pretty bad way. And of course, the Trump thing seems to be ending in a kind of disaster. And so there's a sense in which the question, another question is, can the momentum and the confidence in conservatism that was generated by those early successes, can that be maintained? Uh, And I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, I really don't. Maybe there's a sense in which this is a tremendous opportunity for Christian conservatives to step in to offer a very comprehensive kind of conservatism grounded in a robust biblical understanding of what it is to be a human being, as opposed to what I would actually consider fairly superficial libertarian readings of conservatism, uh, which do seem to be getting trendy but I don't think those visions of conservatism are really going to cut through to the person on the street. Hmm. Uh, so maybe this is a maybe there's a sense in which for conservatism to maintain its traction in the uh, in the event of Trump's downfall, 
and the euphoria of Brexit well and truly wearing off, it needs to dig down deep into its own tradition and maybe recover a more robust understanding of of what it is to be a human being, which involves family, which involves community, things that libertarianism just historically isn't very good at. And so if conservatism is going to have a, a robust future, which is going to maintain a kind of popular enthusiasm, it may that that may provide a real opportunity for more Christian uh, visions of conservatism uh, to sort of have their have their moment in the sun. I can get on board again with a lot of that. I want to package that up and reconstruct it a little bit into some further analysis. I think if we look at everything that has happened in the last, let's say, five, six years, the Brexit vote, Victor Orban, and other sort of right-wingers in Eastern Europe, the whole Trump phenomenon. I mean, how many presidents lend their name to an ism? You know, Trumpism. And Trumpism became an ism, it seems to me. Yeah, <laughs> Almost sure. before he'd even taken the oath of office. That says to me, there are millions of people in Europe, North America, Australia, New Zealand. Maybe not millions in New Zealand, but a couple of hundred. That's right, yeah. <laughs> It's kind of the, the kingdom of Jacinda Ardern these days, and they have a, a smallish population, our, our beloved cousins over the ditch there. The, um, if you add all this up, there's clearly, it seems to me, a sizable global constituency, I guess we're talking the Western world, of course, that is concerned about the left and that supports, even in some amorphous, perhaps some semi-formed, inarticulate way, some of the principles that conservatives champion, some of which you spoke about in terms of the the sanctity and importance of the family as a bedrock of society, uh, which people all the way back to Greeks like Aristotle were able to see that it was really building the key component that forms a society. And what has happened though, this is my my strange metaphor is I think there was a tradition going back to Kirk and Buckley and Oakeshott and Scruton coming out of the 20th century of a kind of intellectual tradition of conservatism, of deep thinkers, people who were very well read, very well educated, who thought a lot about society and they embraced this conservative vision, not out of instinct, not out of some hatred for the left, but because of its own positive vision, you know, out of deep anthropological convictions, theological convictions, and socio-political convictions in terms of uh, who the human being is, who they are in communion with other human beings, and so on and so forth. And I think that tradition uh, atrophied and died for whatever reason. Maybe it's because of the the complete deterioration of our, our education system. Whether that's because of the left or not, I don't know. But as an objective fact, it seems to me uh, we are pumping out people who are not necessarily smarter, but stupider and stupider out of um, universities these days as we focus on... Hey, man, I'm right here. Complete. Fair go. Fair go. <laughs> In added, not everyone could go to an Ivy League school like the two of us. That's you know? right, yeah. You know, we're, 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 we're lifting up the... 
I went to the Harvard campus on at Bankstown. You know, yeah, that's you. right. And I know I went to I don't know the second or last ranked university in, in Australia to get my my PhD. But um, the I think what has happened is as this intellectual basis and foundation, which is how the contemporary conservative movement, philosophical movement. Uh, arose that's what nourished it that's what fertilized it that's what helped it grow so that atrophied and a new generation came along and conservatism for for them this is the metaphor became a kind of junk food it's like a sugar hit you go to maccas or kfc gorge yourself on this junk food but like all junk food their their diet became completely junk food so it became this really unhealthy diet and i guess the junk food here for me is it's simply we, we hate whatever the other side says and we love anything someone who doesn't like that side yeah. says, which is how they lost their moral compass, in my view. And this is how we end up in the capital because there is actually no principled moral vision, conservative moral vision of the world. It's just we hate the left. The left are coming to come and eat your babies. <laughs> and so if I read on social media or some some weirdo on YouTube tells me that a pedophilia ring uh, run by satanic worshippers who feed off the flesh of babies. Again, he's doing, I'm right here, man. Oh, well, yeah, he's doing it all in some pizzeria. Then I've got to get my, my assault rifle and go in and liberate. This is what happens, ladies and gentlemen, yeah. when you just eat junk food all day. And what we need to do is get back on a more balanced, healthy diet to produce healthy conservatives. So you just put your hands in your head. Is that yeah, because I mean, I'm, what, I'm a nut job. No, what you're saying is, is um, really stimulating, to be honest. <laughs> Why are you looking at me like that? Um, you said you were... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I, I think there, there might actually be some hard truths to come to grips with here. For a start, I think maybe the thing that really corrupted the conservative movement. And and it kind of came in when, particularly when American conservatism started hitting its its straps, was the Cold War. Mm. I mean, there's a sense in which the tragedy of the Cold War is that it both sort of spurred on conservatism, but arguably it also corrupted conservatism by really making it, or kind of reducing conservatism basically to anti-communism. And so that could be the kind of tragedy of conservatism in America, that without something like the Cold War, it wouldn't have become uh, a, um, a disciplined, institutionalized movement. But because of the Cold War, it kind of lost its, its philosophical depth and subtlety and easily, very easily morphed into just a kind of another kind of tribalism, um, feeding off uh, the progressive, uh, the progressive side of American politics, which itself again became tribal. Uh, and then you've got a, a third side of American politics, the radical left emerging in the 1960s, which again sort of compounds the tribalism of the conservatives. And then uh, over time, because of the cold war, because of the rise of what I would call sort of critical theory, cultural Marxism in the universities, um, conservatism just basically becomes right-wingism. Mm-hmm. I think that, that could be part of it. But here's, here's, a hard, here's a hard truth. 
uh, maybe the kind of nuanced philosophical conservatism that you and I both kind of long for and, and, and like reading about and like thinking about and like speaking about, maybe the idea that that could ever filter down to, at the popular level is a total pipe dream. I mean, maybe part of the problem uh, is democratic politics itself. I mean, people look to some golden age of political rhetoric, you know, often maybe to the 19th century. They look at the speeches of Gladstone. They, they might look at the speeches of Burke. They'll look at the speeches of Wilberforce. And they'll say, you know, wow, you know, why can't we be like that anymore? Well, because no one would understand it. And no one would appreciate it. And the, the people who were listening to those guys were basically aristocrats who were well-educated. And um, part of the prestige of being an aristocrat was at the very least to have some pretense to appreciate that kind of rhetoric. Um, in a mass, um, in, in, a, in a media-soaked democratic age, and I'm, I'm not necessarily saying democracy um, is, is wrong. I'm, I'm not, I, I believe in democracy, but you know, everything has its cost. And maybe one of the costs of democracy is a kind of permanent impoverishment of political discourse um, that we're just going to have to learn to deal with. And um, maybe that's just something that um, is going to be a permanent part of politics from here in. And, and the idea of some kind of I guess what I'm saying is the idea of some kind of nuanced conservatism really taking hold of people at the popular level from a some sort of philosophical that that could be uh, from some sort of philosophical theory that could be a bit too optimistic, uh, which doesn't mean to say though that such a theory can't, can't kind of try to re-express itself in much more simple terms to gain traction among the people but it's just never it's arguably never going to be held in a philosophically sophisticated way by the people which means it is always going to be very vulnerable to being perverted and twisted by those who might want to do that for their own nef nefarious ends and this and I'm, I'm i know i sound very snobbish at this point about the people i'm really trying not to be because Again, I, I have a pathological antipathy to elites and intellectual elites. Um, I, I really do. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that the average person is so involved in doing very good things like working for a living, um, marrying and giving in marriage, raising a family, that they just don't have the time to develop the kind of subtle thinking that's necessary to hold to a kind of philosophically rigorous conservatism in the mode of those luminaries you mentioned, Kirk, Oakeshott, um, Burke, Scruton. Mm. Uh, and maybe that is part of the fate of conservatism, that if it's going to have any popular traction, the great risk is always going to be that it can be easily perverted because the idea of a sophisticated philosophical conservatism for the masses is little more than a pipe dream. Wow, that... <laughs> I like that. Uh, I think that was... Um, 
that was insightful and it is if nothing else a, a truth that should be countenance that is this could be the reality we are confronting and you know it's it's interesting because I, th- I think you're right and i i underappreciate this and under factor that's probably not a verb but i just you just you've just coined it you can do anything these days oh, I mean, you can turn anything um yeah uh it in the sense that what is the the greatest contribution an average citizen can make from a conservative perspective well it's being a good parent that provides a good nurturing environment that then creates the next generation of citizens it's someone who abides by the law and through their own actions, this is my personal view, supports the order in which they live. Someone who has a strong moral sense and so they can stand up to corruption and instill uh, moral values in the young and other people and who are then loving and caring and uh, are able to serve their community and the people that populate it in some kind of way and so to do that you don't have to bother with the intellectual component however this is the thing clearly uh there is a role for conservative intellectuals because the question is why did so many people stop eating real food and go in for this insane diet of junk food the constant chocolate and sugar hit of partisan combat, culture wars, populism, and this kind of robust, uh, you know, toxic masculinity. I know, I know that's an area that you've written a lot on, and you're, I, you're, you're one of the formative... Um, toxic uh, masculists. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> you are one of the formative toxic ma- males, but I mean, I, I'm trying to, I was trying to work my way to a... Hey, you're pretty uh, toxic uh, yourself. Don't sell yourself short, John. Yeah. I was, I was trying, trying to work my way towards a witty um, something or other, but... It, um, <laughs> it landed like a like a, a lead balloon. But in all seriousness, um, having said what I just said about the average person, so in a way, it's not hard for people to do that. And I think actually millions of people live quiet, decent, constructive, conservative lives. Agreed. The problem is, I think the intellectual class of conservatives have, in a way, sold their souls to the devil, and They've prostituted and perverted themselves. I actually think they've been infected by the left and they've been sucked into this partisan combat and this uh, contest of stupid ideas to see who can be the most idiotic. And they've turned them back, turned their backs on this kind of conservative tradition with these kind of, you know, you think of Russell Kirk, the, the sort of quixotic bloke with the pipe and the weird gravat and, you know... Yes, yes. You know, someone into manners and these kind of old fools who can't stand up to the to the uh, left. And so the, the problem is that in our public discourse, demagogues and populists and I actually think probably psychopaths, gr- grifters, yeah. uh, people who are just exploiting and manipulating the people with their fast food diet, you know, the kind of people that own the franchises in this analogy, they're the ones 
really feeding and marketing this diet because they make a lot of money media models yeah particularly in america you can monetize ideology it's a very strange phenomenon you can can, a couple of people can do it in australia but it's very difficult and so i I think there's been a monumental failing of the conservative intellectual class and not only that but these fast food peddlers hate intellectuals for obvious reasons because they're offering fine dining and so they denigrate intellectuals constantly and so you feel this pressure on the right to get on board with a more populist agenda because intellectuals is what those crazy um you know lunatics on the left going for or this kind of sophistry and the these crazy ideas they come up with but i i think what he what what i'm working towards is how do we get people off fast food if there's no one willing to feed the masses and if there's no one encouraging and willing to mentor young people to become conservatives. The very motivation for me starting this podcast, and, and every day I'm aware there's a complete risk that I might be trying to speak into a market that is simply not there. But if no one is willing to come out and say, I'm a conservative intellectual, and I don't actually like conservative Maccas and Hungry Jacks, uh, I've got to yeah. make sure I can be sued by multiple um, establishments here if there's no one willing to try and change the nature of the conversation and discourse on the right if there's no one who's willing to try and elevate conservatives if there's no one saying to people who on the other side of politics look you can act there is a respectable position to be it is actually a respectable intellectual position to be conservative there's something to it if there's no one who actually bothers to try and sell conservatism to non-conservatives uh, then, then we have to, in a way, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, having said that, I completely agree. I'm very conscious. I could be wasting my time. The whole thing could be wrong. We might be old farts sitting around without a microphone when we were 80, just saying, well, it turns out <laughs> we were just this mm. strange breed of conservative intellectual, this thing that's completely dead now, and there's there's all kinds of other ideological alignments and the thought has crossed my mind actually that that could be our fate well we're definitely going to be old farts but whether (laughs) the point is god willing yeah 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 we might be sitting around some cafe i can think about this as a vision you and i are sitting around we're on our third bottle of whiskey and we're going ah you know the trump days and this and that the good old days and some little whippersnapper comes up and goes excuse me sir what's conservatism Hmm. (laughs) i've never heard of that (laughs) Well, yeah, it'll probably be one of our grandchildren. No, in all seriousness, though, um, I mean, there are, there are a few things that are worth questioning, and that is, I mean, this idea, you know, we've sort of lapsed into this kind of junk food. Well, you know, to quote a Dirty Harry film, well, you know, who's we, sucker? You know, who, who are we talking about here? Are we talking, we're talking about sort of conservative media shock jocks and things like that. I mean, I would argue that there's always been a kind of market and appetite for lowbrow, simplistic social analysis grounded in tribalism and, um, yeah, and fairly uh, unsubtle understandings of concepts like freedom and equality. Um, so, I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to sort of premise some view of what's going on now on on some mythical golden age where there was this widely consumed uh, philosophical conservatism that at some point 
you know, maybe in the 1960s became horribly corrupted. Um, I, I, that may be a bit too rosy a view, but, but what I will say is that I, I do think there is a serious task ahead of conservatives. But the first thing is actually, the first task is that basically, if we've seen the end of Trumpism, and that was just a weird part of modern American history, if we've basically seen the end of it, then I think the first task is that, quite frankly, there needs to be genuine admission of Trump's flaws and the things that went wrong. Uh, but also, so from Trumpists, but also genuine admission from the never Trumpers that the Trumpists, again, sort of the, maybe the more articulate Trumpists, like say someone like a Victor Davis Hanson, that they weren't idiots, you know, that, that they weren't just fooled by Trump because of some messiah syndrome or messiah complex that they had that there was an actual reasonable case for trump and maybe at worst it turned out to be badly wrong but they weren't idiots for thinking mm. that it could turn out right and then secondly uh basically i i think there's emerging and certainly probably has emerged quite a sort of animosity from never trumpers towards Trumpers and I think that there needs that basically never Trumpers kind of need to get over the fact that people went with Trump and and sometimes I worry that in actual fact Trump, uh, Trumpers will will receive less grace in the future than you know progressives who decide to support people like Pol Pot and Mao do from you know, subsequent progressivists when we found out that those people actually turned out to be bloodthirsty dictators. Uh, so I do think first there needs to be healing within conservatism, people just to, and again, Trumpers to sort of admit the flaws of Trump, for sure, but also the never Trumpers to basically get over the fact that not everyone was a never Trumper and accept the fact that, you know, there was a reasonable case for Trump, even if it didn't turn out too badly, uh, too well. Um, but second, the other thing, though, is that, yeah, I completely agree that, uh, you know, we, we need to be able to sell a sophisticated conservatism to those people who are open to sophisticated ideas, uh, who are going to get into culture shaping institutions like universities and the media, become school teachers, public servants. And I think maybe the way forward with that is to encourage support of existing conservative institutions, um, uh, conservative liberal arts colleges especially, and maybe that's the, the, the way to the future. But also encourage you know, con, you know, uh, conservative uh, social commentators. Uh, but, 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 you know, I, I think to be a good conservative social com commentator, you've got to have some skin in the game. It can't just be nuanced, subtle debate about the nature of conservatism. I mean, you've got to, you've got to, you know, put some stakes in the ground in terms of, well, I do support Trump or I don't support Trump. There's got to be some kind of sense in which you are grounded in the, the dirty reality of politics and you are actually offering opinions that might turn out to be wrong. I mean, they're the kinds of things that people are much more likely to listen to. Um, 
but certainly, yeah, um, so, 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 so that, that means sort of finding a balance between philos being philosophically subtle and sophisticated, but also actually having the, the guts to say things that can be falsified, you know, um, and that's something that intellectuals are notoriously skittish about doing. And I would actually say particularly a lot of, I, yeah, I think that's a problem with intellectuals. Uh, I, I, think, I think conservative intellectuals need to rise above that if they're gonna have any more general traction. Uh, if there's one, you know, the, the fate worse than death among intellectuals is to appear foolish among other intellectuals, which means that intellectuals are very, very cautious about saying anything that might not be well received among their, uh, their colleagues which is partly responsible for the, um, the uniformity of thinking among so many intellectuals uh, and, and, and conservatives you know, need to rise above that kind of thing. But, but I think seriously um, cultivating our own institutions and, and forgetting about some fantastical plan of a sort of conservative march through the mainstream institutions. I just... Um, I don't see that happening. I think we're in a permanently polarized world, which in a way for me is kind of a return to normality. I mean, the uncomfortable truth may actually be that there was a period of maybe 30 or 40 years, maybe from World War, the beginning of World War II up until 1970 or the late 60s, when there was a fair bit of social agreement on broadly on economic matters and certainly on moral matters. And we're in coming out of that. And also, this is during a period of, certainly from the late 50s and throughout the 60s, a period also of secularization, where the sectarian animosities between Protestants and Catholics are kind of dying off. Uh, you have the ecumenical movement, particularly in the 50s and 60s. And so there may have been kind of this golden period, maybe it was only 20 years, where society wasn't that polarized. Mm -hmm. But maybe we're now returning to a state of normality. And perhaps what we did, what we have done is mistake that golden couple of decades for the norm, when in fact we have reverted potentially to the norm of disagreement and polarity. And it just struck me as you're talking that again, the Cold War for me really becomes important here because we do get a genuine existential threat. Okay, we can debate whether the, the left progressives are an existential threat or not, but I, don't, I think they're one thing that perhaps was the glue that, that uh, binded society together and brought the parties into some kind of consensus on core questions was that there was a genuine existential threat. There was a threat of nuclear war. Uh, we're of similar vintage, and I will never forget the day my father um, <laughs> alerted me to the fact in the early or mid 80s that there were all these nuclear weapons in the world and there was a risk at any moment that we could all be annihilated and Sydney was probably on the target list of the <laughs> the Soviet Union. Gee, and that, what that, a happy upbringing that was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. My father's a bit of a glass, a bedtime, glass half empty. Yeah, glass <laughs> half empty. Son, it's time for a bedtime story. Yeah, yeah that's right. But I mean, I mean, he wasn't wrong. That, that really was the... Yeah, situation. Yeah. You and I spent our early childhood in the cold in the, the last years, the of last the cold moments, moments where people really did 
were still, um, I was about to say thought, but it wasn't that they thought. There was this. There were these two nuclear arsenals pointing at each other, and there was this global conflict. And so yeah. we remember the Star Wars program. I mean, oh, I thought about no, not well. We remember well, the film, yeah, yeah, of course, Darth Vader and all that. But but <laughs> no, no, you're right. And and so yeah. and so um, you know, once to go back to your point, because I think you really hit on something very, very important here. That you know, once the Cold War left. And I think this is something I think you're right about, and I haven't given enough thought to that. You know, a lot of this, much more of of our current state of affairs, to go back to your the term that has kind of <laughs> framed our entire conversation, might really be a consequence of the the end of the Cold War. And let's not forget, it ended very suddenly and unexpectedly. And suddenly, it felt like overnight we entered a new world order, a new state of affairs, quite legitimately, and and in a way. It's been a kind of incoherent time, possibly because uh, in a lot of Western countries, the very thing that binded us disappeared. And we've been struggling ever since to find some kind of new glue to bind us. Now, Steve, I'm looking at the clock here. And, and just so people know, uh, we do to go to the pub in a couple of minutes to have our second course of alcohol. Correct. This is the kind of after party from the podcast that I'm afraid people aren't going to be privy to correct uh this is this is when we really reveal that we're part of some global secret order that is uh <laughs> running the right, world yeah. this is just the propaganda uh under it. that's right under it. that's that's right running it running it from some rural location in australia some rural pub that's where all great uh, global conspiracies begin so steve uh it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. I feel like I should talk for another minute or two because if I do, we will. This will officially become the longest podcast oh. in um, the political animals' history, and it would be a shame to get so close and for you to be about one or two minutes less than Martin Niles, that, well, a yeah. mutual friend of ours. Oh, a very good friend of mine, and to get so close but to fail. I mean, the story of my life, but um, I. Uh, I mean, it's a good time to say that I, I thought what you just said was. In, um, spot on, very eloquent, actually the perfect way to wend it. Um, and it's, it's very similar to what Andrew Basevich argued in, again, in his latest book, whose title I've forgotten, but the subtitle is How America Wasted the Cold War. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think you're right. Again, that perhaps this sort of golden period, um, which involved, yes, the, the, the softening of sectarian tensions, not just in America, but also in Australia. And also, yeah, a, uh, a mutually agreed upon existential threat uh, as being the exception to the norm. And maybe in our historically amnesiac age, we just have no idea of that. And we think we're going into a new insanity, but in actual fact, we're going into what humans have lived with since what free humans have lived with since time immemorial since humanity immemorial anyway yeah okay steve that's a, a fitting way to end it with some uh wise words of profundity we both just uh, feel like over talking and i think we've probably uh given you the record now so we can put the uh, take that martin those those listeners that have uh made it all the way to the end out of their misery it's been great. We can now let our hair down and um, have a meal and a few more drinks. Thanks for listening. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed hearing the uh, 
considered thoughts of a Trumpaholic, otherwise known as Steve, Steve Shadora. Um, first class top bloke, if I might say so. I'm one of my very best friends, and it's always fun to hang out with him. I'll be back next week with uh, something. I don't know what I'm going to talk about or who I'm going to talk to, but there'll be more uh, stimulating, as Steve said, content to come, so stay tuned. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you later.